Well, open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 13 with me. We're going to read the full chapter this morning and continue our series through John. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, let the word be read over you and wash over you. Chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, I do not wash you. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. 
when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. So today, I want to talk uh, for a minute about focus. Focus. Jesus is after something really important, and he's focusing everyone in on it. The, the sort of main passage here in this chapter, the core aspect of this teaching is about love and loving one another. If you take anything away from this text, I'm sure it's this new commandment that Jesus gives. But he does it first through focusing. As millennials particularly, it's been said that the the disease of our age is distraction. In fact, this is manifested in something I just learned about this week called choice anxiety. So the idea of choice anxiety is the fact that we are a generation, the millennial generation specifically, but everyone that's living in this time is like awash in choices, right? The very emblem of the information age is just the the crazy litany of choices. Everyone can identify with the feeling of jumping on Netflix at nine at night and spending, planning to spend an hour just unwinding, watching something, and sitting there scrolling through shows for 40 minutes, and then realizing you don't even have time to watch anything anymore. Nothing quite seems right. What do I pick? So many things want my attention. This could be good. This, what about this? And we just can't make up our mind. And it's a kind of trap, right? That hour gets wasted in a sea of choices, That in that choice-making place that we find ourselves in, we find out that we're, we're actually searching for something, but we can't quite put our finger on what we want. And the thing that we're searching for to deliver it can never quite deliver it for us. And if Jesus is saying one thing in this chapter, he's saying that focusing on me is a cure for the disease of your age. Focusing on me is the cure for the disease of distraction. It's the cure for the disease of choice anxiety. In chapter 14, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I'm it. You don't need anything else to be happy except me. And I think for us, that's a really hard pill to swallow. That's a really hard thing to remember. Megan and I this week have really spent time saying we are going to retreat. 
We are going to take a time, which by the way, I don't know, you might all feel like you're in a kind of retreat, right? Quarantine has been its own kind of removal. But, but let me tell you, you can remove so much further. And to walk, to, to go away into a space and to be in a little room here with the snow falling outside as we've been this whole week. And to try and imagine the simplicity of what really matters and to focus on what really matters. All sorts of things come up. All kinds of feelings, all kinds of desires. One of the desires we had was just to be back to help everyone with the power outages. It was hard to be happy because we felt guilty. One, one of the things was, what do I fill with my time up with so it's valuable, so this meets my expectations? And I'll tell you, the answer to both of those things was, of course, Jesus, but in very different ways. On one level, yes, fill, fill your time with focusing on Jesus, but also realize Jesus can take care of the things you can't take care of. So Jesus has brought his disciples into this place in a time of focus. And he's actually, it's, it's incredible the way John strokes, like, strokes this narrative and lays down the words to get us to where we're at. Twelve chapters, Jesus has been nomadically sort of moving across the countryside between Jerusalem and up north and through Samaria and all of these different places in this public ministry to get the word out about who he is, to be known, to 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 serve and love people everywhere of all types. And here now he comes through the gates of Jerusalem in chapter 12, as Michael told us, and he inaugurates a new kingdom. And Michael was clear that that kingdom was surprising and upside down because the emblem of it wasn't power, as we would think of it, but suffering. And so Jesus is coming, he's inaugurated this new kingdom with this new belief system and this new, most importantly, this new king. And what Jesus is showing as he walks through and saying, I am the Messiah, by walking through on a donkey, he's proclaiming, I am the Messiah. He's fulfilling the scriptures. He's saying, trust me. You've got to let your ideals go by the wayside. You've got to weigh your, the way you think love works. You actually need to lay that down. And you need to focus on me. And then what happens after this chaotic chapter 12 where the Greeks have come to visit him, the Pharisees are throwing up their hands, God's voice is booming down from the heavens. What happens? Jesus hides and retreats and we find him in chapter 13 in a single room with his disciples. And he will stay here in this focused state for the next four chapters five chapters through the end of chapter 17, and he will be spending time thinning and training his people, his core group, an outpost. The SV calls it a messianic community. I've been, I've been having a hard time shaking this word for our church that I think is crucial for the next season we're entering in, and that is that we are an outpost Jesus here is training the very first outpost, his closest few that would agree to trust not in the, the way, the ideal, the kingdom that they thought would come, but in the man to gather around him and trust in him. 
And it happens, um, and I'm happy it's happening this way, that as we're charting through these chapters leading up to the passion story, leading up to the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we will, we will hit the cross on Good Friday. We will hit, of course, the resurrection story on Easter. But leading up to that, we will chart through this whole narrative leading up to it. In the same time that most Christians right now, historically Christians have been observing a season called Lent. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Lent, Lent is a 40-day season before that, that culminates with Easter. Starting with Ash Wednesday this past week, in which we go through a liturgy, starting with Ash Wednesday, where we say we are dust. Out of dust we come, and out of dust we will return, putting ourselves in the proper place, and growing by removal closer to Jesus. The primary thing that you may remember if you've ever observed Lent is a fasting, a choosing of what to fast from. Now, the intent of a fast isn't to punish yourself and be miserable, right? But every time you hunger for the thing you fast from, you are to be reminded and brought in closeness to Jesus and God our Father into this Trinitarian goodness, that it is a bringing closer of oneself to Jesus through a period of removal that creates focus. Now that's a foreign concept to our age, isn't it? Wait, John, you want me to remove things? I thought the whole beauty of this age was that I could have anything I want. I could be anyone out. I could choose everything. No, remember, choice anxiety is the disease of our age. And Jesus says here, I am the cure because I bring focus. What? Not on a not on an ideal or a way or a philosophy or a particular goal or product and outcome, but on a person. And that person can be get such a focus and a process when the when the primary motive is closeness to the person. And so in this place of focus, in this season of focus. We're going to dive into this chapter and look at what Jesus is saying about love. And then we're going to spend a considerable amount of time saying, so what? And looking at what our community in this season should be about, what I believe we need to be after, and what I think this teaching shows for us. So let's dive right in. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about this prime directive of this passage, this new commandment. In this passage, I think John gives us a visual example of God's love through service a verbal directive, a clear verbal directive to love and serve, and finally the basis for Christian love and service. In other words, this is a text about love which shows godly love commands us to godly love and explains how this love is powered. So what that means then is if Jesus is coming in on the donkey in chapter 12 and he is beginning this inaugurational period in which he is saying, I am the Messiah. It's as if the president is saying, I have won the election, right? There's this period of time before they're coronated king, before they're inaugurated at their speech, where the, the, the kingdom that is coming is becoming known and it's certain and it will happen, even if the crown has not been put on, even if that final speech and the power in the Oval Office have not been taken. This is the period of saying, these are the boundaries, these are the terms, this is what this, we're going to define this period, this new age. And of course, this age is the age of Jesus as king. That's the new age that's coming and that's the age we still live in. 
An inauguration is defined as a beginning or an introduction of a system or a policy or a period. So then this, what we're seeing in chapter 13, is sort of the, the, the teachings, the codification of the period that Jesus is beginning. And it shows us that this period is one of simple but deep love, brought out of simple but deep faith and certain salvation. In other words, when you, when you link what it is you're after, not to a, a way of being or an ideal, but a man that we see in this chapter that Jesus shows us the simple and deep love, that Jesus brought, lived this out of a simple but deep faith, and that Jesus had a certain sal- certainty of his salvation, then what we're saying is our definition of love isn't going to define Jesus. Jesus is going to define our definition of love. Now, that's really crucial for our community living in our city. Our city brings lots of wonderful, great things to it. But one thing that is preeminent in our age is that with all of the choices that exist, I am the arbiter of goodness and I lean my own path through it and I find my true self. So in a way, I am defining all of my terms based on what's good for me. But I'm here to say what's, what you think is good for you and what you think then is good for the world because it's going to be coming out of what you think is good for you doesn't define what is actually good. Jesus defines that. So the way we love best, the way we think we should be loved best, the way we think we ought love best, isn't the way we see whether Jesus is true or not and fits into our worldview and can be our king. Rather, Jesus says, I am king and I define what love is. So focus, make it easy on yourself. You don't have to look through a huge buffet of choices. Just focus on me. And it's really, really important we do that because in chapter 12, as Michael made very clear, his kingdom is an upside down one. What was sort of the defining verse in that chapter? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this life will keep it for eternal life. I think the New Living Translation puts it really clearly for us. Whoever, those who love their life in this world will lose their life. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. That's the foundation of being with Jesus that is so hard to stomach and we can only do it if we say, yes, because I want to believe with, be with Jesus, I will do that. Because I know Jesus is king, I will follow him. Otherwise, you're going to throw that out. You're going to get rid of that because that is too hard. It requires too much sacrifice. And you can come up with plenty of other definitions of the way that caring ought to be done that don't require you to have to give up your life in that service. But Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not love. So in light of that, let's look at Jesus's masterclass on love here in chapter 13. And let's piece out this text fairly quickly, walking through some of the key verses and what they show us so that we can get to some application and meet. So the first verse I want to I jump into is verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
there is a simple and total sense of Jesus's love. Having love, he didn't stop and change his love because he was about to die, but because he was about to die and because he had total security in that, which we'll get into in a second, he could love them even to the end of his own life. He could love those he had loved all along. That is true love. And it's clearly defined in service out of that line in chapter 12 that you must lay down your life to truly do that. It's a, it's a prerequisite. Okay, so then verse three, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus shows us through a visual example that because of who he is and what he knows and because of his commitment to this simple, total love, that he will come to serve us. He comes to serve us. And we know that the order of how this works is really important. You might, you might easily jump and say, well, the visual of Jesus, I'm supposed to mimic that. I'm supposed to go wash others' feet. But you must, you must get this in really deeply. That love begins out of us from Jesus' service to us and accepting that. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And what does Jesus say? He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So the order is super important. All love begins first, as we see visually in this, with Jesus getting down on his knees, taking off his robe, tying it around as a towel, and washing our dirty feet out of his love for us. So what is that? This love then, he loved them to the end, is connected to this washing. So what does that show us? That, mean, that shows us that Jesus' love is a service to make us clean. That his love is a serving of us to clean us. That's how he loved his disciples to the end, was to serve them in order to clean them. That's the visual. That's the whole visual that we're getting here that John is showing in just such a clear image and such a memorable one. That you are, are not worthy to do anything. You don't get to go wash Jesus' feet. He's already clean. No, he must come and clean your feet. It originates with him. Secondly, we see who Jesus loves. We see who does he love here? He loves 12 disciples, including the one who will betray him to his death. Jesus loves not just sinners, but he loves sinners who hate him and will eternally turn away from him. He still comes and serves them first to clean them, to do everything from his part, whether they are good or bad, so to speak, whether they are a little bit dirty or completely rotten down to the deepest innermost core. Actually, Jesus is serving and washing the feet of a soul that has let the devil inside of it. And Jesus still gets down on his feet to show his love, 
even to a body which inside has the demonic influence of Satan. Jesus will still get on his knees to wash and serve. That is a powerful image of loving. Remember, we talked about loving two weeks ago. It's living for the sake of another. Now, Jesus is not living for the sake of the devil, but he is living for the sake of the last shred of goodness in Judas's soul. And he will get down on his knees and wash him to make him clean. That's what Jesus is showing love is. So an application for us is that I want you to now imagine the full Jesus, the Jesus from John 1, the word, And imagine now, sitting here as you're listening to this, that the creator of the entire universe is getting down right now and he is washing your feet. He is serving you. He's making breakfast for you. He's taking care of your bills. He's watching your kids so you can go out on a date night. He is doing that act of service that you just don't want to do. And he is doing it. Why? So that he may clean you. His service in you is so that you may become clean. And we're going to get more into that. But the the fact that it means that he is clean, you means you need to understand the gravity of your sin. Ash Wednesday is a reminder to us that from dust we are and from dust we return. It is a reminder that the human without the love of Jesus, without the spirit, is is broken beyond repair. That the gravity of my sin must be underscored as a Christian. We don't like to do this in the Christian church. I'm a pretty big fan of it, so you've had plenty of it with me. We come in saying, ah, I'm under. And then we say, Jesus, because you have cleaned me. The beginning of all love is Jesus, because you have cleaned me. So then let's continue moving on. Now Jesus, after showing this visual example, even unto Judas, gives a verbal command that is predicated out of this. And that's this loving command, this new commandment, which is not, of course, a new, entirely new commandment. It's a summation. It's an overarching understanding of the character of God and what he has asked to do in this world. It's it's simplifying love. That you love one another, verse 44, just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, that foot washing, so you are also to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. See, this is a distillation of earlier when Jesus said, I'm the teacher, and the teacher does things, you should follow them and repeat them. That's the way of the apprentice. The apprentice follows the craftsman who's teaching him, whether it's a woodworker or a plumber or whatever, follows what he does and repeats what he does and how he does it. So he doesn't have to relearn the tricks of the trade. So he doesn't have to make the same mistakes. He follows like a teacher. And Jesus says, you are to wash each other's feet. Now, I think it's, it's really easy for us to walk out of this service with, with our basic understanding of love, which is a me-centric view of love. And this, this came to my mind. I don't know how many of you grew up watching this movie. This was very much my generation. But the movie Moulin Rouge, right? Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. And, and there's this line in this great song that says, the greatest thing you'll ever know is just to love and be loved in return. Now, there's, there's so much truth to that. There's so much truth to that. But if you take that away, it is a me-centered love. 
which says, I will, it becomes a little bit transactional, is just to love and be loved in return. So we go out and we love all around, but what are the things we actually stick with and keep with and spend our time continuing to love? The things that love us back, the things that we get something from, and that is the fallen me-centered state of human love. That is the way so many of us have internalized the idea of love is that I go out and I love all around and the things that love me back I stick with and that's what creates my happiness. And Jesus is pushing us away from that me-centered romantic love that says, it's just to love and be loved returning. He says, no, no, no. He said, it's just to be loved and then go love in return. It's just to be loved. It starts with Jesus. Remember this visual, this verbal command is just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. But so many of us don't even comprehend the level to which Jesus has loved us. And so then we cannot go and love other people well because we're not doing it out of the basis that Jesus shows us he's doing it out of. The kind of love that Jesus has is the kind of love we all want. It's powerful love. It's simple, powerful, deep love. He loves in the face of death. He loves when the devil's in the room. He loves to those that don't get it, and he loves to those that will turn away, and he still loves them to the end. And he can do that because his love is powered from God. Now, I think this is particularly salient. I have no business talking about this. We have not lost power, but our home lost power this week. And so we were managed, we, we evacuated our fish this week. I know, least of my concerns, white privilege. Hello. We evacuated our fish this week because the heater, they were going to die. And so our Olivia, just, just Olivia, you're amazing. She came, she got our fish over the neighbor's house because we had a power outage. And we saw the nature and the coldness of not having that connection, of being connected to the power grid. Maybe many of you, I know many of you lost power. You firsthand felt what it feels like to be removed from the power grid, to sometimes lose your heat, to lose your light, to lose your ability to cook. So many things change so radically with, those, with that, doesn't it? When you lose that power. And Jesus is saying, it's so crucial that your love come from the grid, that you be linked into the grid. And what does he call the grid? He says, it's very clear at the beginning. He says, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved him to the end, right? And it says, Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and went and served. Jesus, knowing he was linked into the power grid, knowing that he had nothing to worry about because God's power grid can't fail like PGE, that he was completely secure, that he had total assurance And he knows that it will come for the people, for the 11 in the room. There's 11 people in the room that it will come for. That's why he's saying, you are clean, even though I wash your feet, but one of you isn't clean. But it won't come out of their own doing, but only out of his doing. That's why Jesus says in a number of different places, he says it in verse 8. He says, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Because if Jesus doesn't wash Peter in the ultimate washing through the cross, 
in the ultimate forgiveness of his sins that is only accepted through grace by the power of Jesus, that is a certain security. If that doesn't happen first, it doesn't matter what Peter does. So Peter needs to get off his high horse and his John Wayne, his cowboy. I can do it all because I think I know the way and I can do it out of my own power and say, no, it's through the power of Jesus and the utter like wreckage that the cross brings to my life of me seeing what I really am. And then the utter birth and resurrection out of that death of what Jesus says I am in spite of myself, that I can go love. That's what will allow me to love the unlovable. That's the power source that brings the power of love. And so Jesus is articulating, he articulates at best this chain connection, this chaining. I think of it almost through like magnets or through the electrical grace. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So there's this power grid structure right through the, I don't know what they call them on the grid, the, the transformers or the Elijah's just like, oh my God, John, I can't believe you don't know this. Uh, through all of these different aspects where the power comes through, it has to link and get through. Well, guess what? It's sure from God. He's the source of all, all things. And then it's sure from Jesus because he is one in the Trinity. We know he's the word. We know he's the Alpha, the Omega with God. But it's not sure out of us except with the cross, except with Jesus' death. Then it is actually for sure. It is completely as sure as Jesus has it from the Father that we now have it so long as it's coming from him. Do you see how this is all starting to connect now? This, this connection, how the focus matters, how seeing that Jesus is the way, the true, and the life. All of this matters and comes together with the cross. And that is the reason for all this cryptic language that Jesus has of saying, no, no, you don't understand. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then he says later to Peter, he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. This is verse 36, but you will follow afterward. See, Jesus is actually totally sure he knows all things but he also knows something needs to happen first. And this is the power of the cross. And this is why it's so important that the love doesn't come from me that cures the world. It's not about just Jesus activating my love goodness for the rest of the world to cure the world in some sort of humanist utopia. If we all humans would just love, everything would be okay. No, everything is okay because of Jesus who died on the cross, not because of all of us loving right. It's because of his love, right, that any of our love actually means and will work and will follow through to the end. I mean, look at what Peter does. Look at how well Peter's love works. He says, I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, I actually know the future. And we know this by reading John, that Jesus is right. He says, yeah, well, sorry, you're going to deny me three times. No, it's hard to believe right now. I know you really think it, but because your love is not yet powered by the cross, you won't stick with it. You'll give up. You'll watch out for number one. That's how it works. I remember when I was, I made my first film was in Uganda, Africa. And I had been, uh, there was a group of students that were going out to teach art and do different things to minister through a, a, a para-Christian church agency that was going out to work at an orphanage for former child soldiers in Uganda. Heart-wrenching, just heart-wrenching. 
And I just felt that this was my senior thesis project. I needed to go out and do this. And I had asked around and I had to fundraise a little bit to get the plane ticket and different things. And I asked a missionary um, from my upbringing, close family friend, I said, uh, what are your recommend? Give me some wisdom. And he said this, he said, John, you can read whatever you want. You need to go make your film. Go make your film. It will make a difference. But he says, remember, you can't save Africa. Now you might say that's, uh, of course, but in my, in my 20 something mind of my young, I'm gonna change the world, my film's gonna make a huge difference, I'm gonna do all this work. I didn't know how true his statement was and how based on the cross it was. Jesus is gonna save Africa. Jesus is gonna save the world. Remember, you can't do it. Now that isn't a defeatist. It wasn't to say, I'm not gonna, he, he, he threw money at me. He blessed my trip. He watched my film after it was over. He loved all of it. But it was so true that what I did could not save Africa. But the power of Jesus through my presence there had reverberating effect. The power of Jesus in the continent of Africa has powerful reverberating effect. And it is through Jesus' power that happens. And we are just on board to build things that he can fill up. We're just on board to get out there and get our hands dirty so that his good energy and love can flood through that. And it must come from his cross or out of us, it will be us-centered love. And we will be looking for love back. And when it doesn't come, we will abandon that love. So, so what, John? So what does this mean for us right now? We're still kind of in this lockdown phase. What does it mean for us in Portland? What do I do? I get that this love is a big deal. I get that it's simple. I get that it's built on the cross. I get that Jesus gives us this beautiful image for it. And I get that he tells me that I need to do it. And I get that it's going to come at a cost for myself. What does that mean for what I need to go do? Well, I think what we can see from this passage really clearly, as N.T. Wright puts it, he says, we are put right in order to be putting right people. We are put right, that's the cross, in order to be putting right people. So this passage and Jesus' love for the whole world through the cross gives us a focus and a purpose. But God wants us to be people and not puppets. So there's a unique way that he has for each of us. He wants our hearts, not just our hands. He wants our desires, just not our dollars. He wants our commitment to him, not just to others. And that is the vertical. That is the upward directed thing. And he uses a very clear image for this to underscore this relationship that is the power grid relationship. And it is a master-servant image. He uses it in verse 16. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. There are two ways that you and I in this so what category, there are two ways that we can react to the message of Jesus. There are two ways that you are reacting to the message of Jesus right now. One is Peter's and one is Judas's. The tone of Peter is this. I don't know where I would be without Jesus. Jesus corrects Peter. Peter stands corrected. Peter has a servant mentality. He goes, I don't know where I'd be without you. Fine, that's wrong. Tell me what's right. Wash my head and my face. Wash all of me. I just want to be with you. 
Judas, hearing everything that Jesus has said in this powerful, saturated chapter of love, is convinced more and more that Jesus is a fraud. And where Peter says, I don't know where I'd be without Jesus, Judas says, imagine where I, or we, as a culture, could be without Jesus. Imagine where I or we could be without Jesus. This guy's a fraud, and he's been shown as a fraud. He's showing himself right now as a fraud to me. That's what Judas is saying. Remember, Judas is in line with the Pharisees. He's allied with him. What do the Pharisees think? That Jesus is demon-possessed, that he's a false god, that he said he's God, but there's only one true God, and that's Yahweh. So the devil is clever. Judas doesn't think he's his own master. Judas thinks that Yahweh is his master. So the devil is very clever. He's made Judas believe that Jesus is against the mission of Yahweh, the true God, the one with the true mission, the one who knows true love. And that the claims of Jesus, the claims of Christianity, the claims of church are bogus and they're antithetical to love. And therefore, Jesus is a fraud. I love our culture very much. There are so many wonderful things that are coming from our culture right now that we need to appreciate. But we must be on guard with this. Our culture is sending a very, very different message of what love is than Jesus' message of love. And the devil is clever. He's going to say, do you serve the master of Jesus' vision of love? Or do you serve the master of that love? Because that's your God, that's your Yahweh, and you've said Jesus can't be part of him like Judas. And you're saying Jesus is actually a fraud. I follow that mission of love. You have to be very careful of that. Because Judas thinks that God is his master, but actually Jesus. Actually, no, here's, here's, get this, this is crazy, Okay. Judas doesn't think he's his own master, right? He thinks God's his own master. But guess who is actually Judas's master? It's shown in this text so visually. There are two different sections, verse 2 and verse 27, where it says in verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So the devil's putting things into this guy's heart. And then in verse 27, it says, then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Yahweh isn't. Judas's master. Judas isn't even his own master. The devil is Judas's master. Now, if that doesn't cut us when we stray from Jesus, I don't know what will. You are not saying you're your own master. You have made the devil your master. And that's exactly what is shown in this chapter. That the Judas mindset opens us up to all kinds of anxiety, looking for all kinds of different truth, because the devil doesn't care what to you go to, so long as it's not Jesus. Doesn't matter what it is. He can come up with a thousand and one distractions. And so here we see that Peter chooses a master and chooses to be the servant under the master, that Peter is living out this kind of Lenten living, this living out of this season of Lent, this season of removal. He's completely and fully loving that. He's not just accepting and saying, well, fine, I'll deal with, with this, this time when I need to fast from the rest of things. He's, he's saying, Jesus, teach me everything I need to know. Equip me. You are it. And that's the intent of Jesus. He wants to get us all in the room with him. And he's going to thin it out. In this passage, what happens before he gives the new commandment? He thins it out. 
He does a bunch of very persuasive loving on Judas, even citing scriptures like Psalm 41. He cites in here saying prophetically, Judas, you're even buying into the prophecy and you're the bad guy. And Judas says, I don't believe any way you cite scripture because you're demon possessed. So nothing you say matters. That's how closed minded Judas had become. Judas was uncorrectable at this point because he had determined that Jesus did not have the truth in him. And we can get to that point if we become so unfocused and so searching and falling in love with other things. And so we have to remember that Peter shows us the Lenten living kind of way of removing and saying, it is not going to be problematic for me. I don't need fear of missing out. I can get rid of something for this season And so long as every time I hunger for him, I remember that Jesus is the better version of it. And I guarantee you, you will find how Jesus is the better version. You will find how that was just a faint version. And that will begin to eliminate our choice anxiety. Because we can, with firm resolution and joyful thanksgiving, say, Jesus is all I need. His path is the path that will completely fulfill me. And this image has come to Megan and I's mind during this time where we've been really anchoring on what is this outpost thinking. And the image that has come to mind is of a racehorse with blinders on, right? That in order for a racehorse to run the race well, they need to first be aimed at the actual goal, right? That's paramount. That's the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas has gone off the right he's in a, Even if he gets there fastest, he's gotten to the wrong place. He's not finishing the racetrack. He's off in the, in the bleachers. But Peter's got, got it on the right way and he's going to the right destination. He's after Jesus. He is a servant to the master. And Jesus is coming in and he's putting blinders on. He's correcting Peter. He's getting him into the room with, a, with 10 other disciples. He's thinning it down and then he's training them up. And he's going to do that how? And this is the beautiful part. Uh, it's pretty clear in the text. Trial and error. Trial and error is how it's going to happen in large part. We can't be taught this stuff. We need to go out of the love of Jesus to love other people and fall on our face and see how miserable we are at it on our own in a refining process of overflowing the love in Jesus to other people that will last our entire life. The way we see it with Peter is he says, yeah, yeah, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You'll deny me three times. Trial and error. What happens? Jesus built his church on Peter. Trial and error when we are after Jesus is a proper way of apprenticeship and discipling in the name of Jesus. And the way that will help us get there is by eliminating the junk. So so, so what? The application for us as a church this season is that I would like us to consider eliminating in this season. Now, I know we didn't start on Ash Wednesday. I'm a week late. For, for this next period until Easter, I would like you to think about what can I eliminate? What is the junk that is getting, what is the thing I go to with my desires? What is this thing that I use to fill the void that should be filled with the love of Jesus? And can I remove that? Now, here's, let me play this out for you because we've done a little bit of this just in this week. What might happen? first, you'll feel a death. At first, you will feel um, an emptiness, a kind of winter quality, just white snow everywhere. And you will feel alone. 
and you will feel like you don't really matter. And you will feel like you can never figure it out. And Jesus says, trial and error, keep going after me. And you will hit scripture and you will hit prayer and you will hit the practices and the disciplines that you create an apprenticeship to Jesus. You will put yourself in this with this outpost, Citizens Church, with our outpost. We will get our blinders on and we will run like racehorses. And when we stumble and fall, we can help each other out. When we learn something, we can share it. But guess what? The thing you share to your friend isn't necessarily going to help them. They have to go through it too. We all need to do this Lent process of removing to bring ourselves close to just because he doesn't want puppets. He wants us. And he will have unique ways for each of us to build the kingdom. There's a common business term, which is that there are creativity out of constraints. Probably you've heard this before. Certainly a lot of podcasts, secular and otherwise, have had this during quarantine and during the pandemic. And it's saying creativity, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention, right? When, when the power is out in Portland, what did you do? You got creative and innovative. You couldn't have power. It wasn't about getting your power back on. It was about working within those limitations and saying, how can I still find and have goodness in whatever the things I'm after? Jesus says, if you're after me and my love and you put up constraints, there can be incredible creativity on how to find me. And each of us will have different ways of doing it. And I think this Lent process, if I had to give you my vision, it's that this in this Lent process, we will all go through some trial and error. And we will begin to actually have the foundation of rethinking our lives. Quarantine has been a period for all of us of which we've, I've had many conversations with you guys where you have rethought things. You've said, I don't actually like my job. I need a new job. I actually don't like working. I want to stay at home with my kids. I, um, I like this, but I hate the commute. Uh, I found that I really love being with my family. I found that my family and bringing up my kids actually matters more than my career. In light of quarantine, we have found so many different things. I find I really like people. And I was too busy for people, and I want to make more time for people. See, in a period of removal, there is a clarification that has happened for you. Now, I want to drop it to a deeper level. I want to drop it to a more foundational space and say, those are all really great logistical life habits. Now root them out of the cross. Now root them out of the fact that Jesus loved you so that you can go love. Let that be enough. And in the total restraint of that, that is everything for you. You have all you need. Now these other things aren't distracting you. Well, you actually don't need them that much. Meg and I were tooling around in Bend, right? And we spent one day in a total fast to try this out. We have tried this out ahead of you. Megan's much better at fasting than me. I tried out my first fast. I have never fasted before this week. I tried out my first fast. And it was, it was so clarifying for me because every time there was that hunger pain, I just went to the love of Jesus. I went to closeness. I said, how can I be closer to you? Whether it's listening to something, read something, praying, being with Megan, just enjoying what I have around me in spite of that, realizing that I don't need that, whatever, food, to enjoy my time. And then it's so wild. We spent the next day, and we went in. So that day, life was a lot simpler, right? Because when you're on vacation, what do you mostly do? You mostly eat, eat and drink, right? That's like how you fill your days up. Some of us anyways. Some of you have lots of cool activities you do and you're way better people than me. But eating and drinking on a vacation is great, right? 
And every time you go out to eat, what do you have to do? You have all these choices. That day was so clear. It was so affordable. It was so clear. It was so clarifying to just be like, this is the intention of today and it's enough and I'm happy. The next day we went into bed and it was like, we spent forever choosing a place. We finally sat down and it, it was okay, you know, but it was just kind of like, I, I just was realizing like my day is filled with clutter. The clutter of choosing a whole bunch of unnecessary things that don't really matter. I almost rather somebody would just like prescribe my meal plan, right? Just make it simple for me. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, your meal plan's prescribed. Guess what? It's, it's prescribed. I've given you commandments. I've given you ways to build your life around. It's all prescribed. It's all out there. And look at how much simpler that makes your life. Now, will it require what happens in what he says in chapter 12, that you will need to let your life go? Yes, there will be a death. But the resurrection life out of it will be so much greater that then when you are resurrected out of the love of Jesus, the service that you give will be sweeter. You will realize that that's what life, life is about, to wash other people's feet. And I think the last term I want to leave us with, we're going to suss out all these terms. We're going to stick with outposts. We're going to stick with this racehorse metaphor. But the last thing is joy, joyfulness. Citizens, we are a joyful outpost. If this next 40 days is a season of misery for you, I think some piece there is missing. That actually the removal and the closeness should bring joy. Now, joy is not always happiness. It's not always a feeling of complete fullness and satisfaction. It's not a feeling that I have everything the way I want it. It's a feeling that I am secure, that there is a blessed assurance, the assurance Jesus had with the Father, the assurance that he gives us with the cross. I have that and no one can take it away. Therefore, I can have joy. And when you start living this way, you see all sorts of incredible connections. You see the fruit of the fact that our outpost is part of a much bigger outpost. We had a wonderful little experience just yesterday, and this would have been middle of the week as you're listening to this. Um, we, were, we were going over this sermon together um, down at the restaurant next to our place. And uh, these people next to us said, are you Christians? And we said, yeah. And they said, can you pray for Patrick? He broke his femur and he's got cancer all through his body. He broke his femur skiing and we just want everyone we know to pray for him. I just thought this is the power of the interconnected outposts in the power of Jesus. Pray for Patrick. You guys, pray for Patrick. Why? Because prayer works. We have a joyful outpost and it's infectious. And the connections and the surprises will come when you live out of that joy. And the taste that God has given us of that is so profound. And we can't wait for more of that to happen in our church. Let me pray for all of you guys. God, there's so much in this passage that we could go through that we haven't tapped into, but I hope that you've communicated the deepest things to us. God, help us to focus. Help us to be particular and pick something this week, whatever it may be that we need to fast from, whether that's a social media fast or a, a kind of food fast or a sugar fast or a, a certain kind of a thing that we need, God certain relationship that we've hinged everything on that we need to reframe and help us fill that space with you God 
so that we know that every powerful thing that comes out, every good thing that comes out of us is from you and through the cross, and every good thing that comes around from us is from your saving love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.